and as we, as we spend time in God's word, that, this, that, that you would quiet your hearts, that you would humble yourselves, that you would seek him, and that he would bring restoration and renewal to you today. That he would encourage you, that he would strengthen you. This is what he does for his people as his people turn to him, and I know he will do it for you today as well. So let's, let's pray into that. God, I thank you that you are so good and so gracious. We've been singing about that today, that you have compassion on us. You care about us, Lord. And as we're coming here, and some of us are weary, some of us have, have had weeks where we've had difficult conversations, we've had difficult news come to us. We, we have felt weighed down, Lord, by circumstances in our lives or in the world. But I thank you that you are God. You are Lord above it all, and that you are, are, are here to meet with us. Uh, Lord, you want to meet with us. You want to speak to us. You want to lift that burden off of us. Lord, and give us rest. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so just to kind of recap where we've been a little bit. We are, this is kind of the last sermon in this series on uh, Acts 12 to 15 that we've been in. We're going to pick up Acts again in the, new, in the new year, but this is kind of our last sermon in this series. And in the last few Sundays, we've been looking at this big controversy, big crisis in the early church, the big question of whether Gentile Christians need to be circumcised, need to become Jewish in order to truly be saved, in order to truly be part of the people of God. And so this, this gathering of leaders comes together in Jerusalem, and the consensus is no. Gentile Christians don't need to do that. Salvation is through grace, through the grace of Jesus— that we receive by faith, that's it. But they do recognize that if Jews and Gentiles are now worshiping together, doing life together, that there are going to be some cultural differences that really make it difficult, that are going to create tensions. And so they decide to write this letter that essentially kind of boils down to here are some practices that you Gentiles need to avoid if we are to see unity in the church. So that's, that's the letter, and today we're going to look at the aftermath of that. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in, uh, in Acts 15, starting in verse 30. This is right after we read what the letter that they wrote says. Acts 15, verse 30. So the men who were given the letter were sent off, they went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. 
The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So here's the thing that impresses me most about this passage. Um, The character of God. And that might be surprising because I don't think God isn't mentioned that much in this passage. And the actions, the events that take place, they're not attributed to him. Right? It's, it's humans doing this stuff. It's humans delivering the letter and reading the letter. It's humans arguing with each other and splitting up. It's humans circumcising other humans. It's just like humans are doing all these things. So, so where is God in all of this? What's he doing? Well, God's in, God's in the stuff. He's in all the stuff. And there's always stuff, isn't there? There's always stuff that threatens to undo us as individuals, that threatens to undo the church as a whole. And it's comforting for me in some ways to know that the early church dealt with this too. I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like human relationships and and institutions and really any like thing where humans are coming together, doesn't it feel oftentimes really fragile? Like really tentative? Like 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 one misstep, one one puff of wind and the whole thing comes crashing down. Doesn't it feel like that to you sometimes? There's all this stuff that just like makes things feel so volatile. But that was true in the early church too. They had stuff to deal with. Um, and, and, and look at the different ways that, that came into play for the early church. For one thing, they had outside persecution and hostility and, and opposition We've seen that kind of from the beginning in this this series. I mean, you might think that if you had a group of people who were following a crucified and resurrected Jewish Messiah in a context of a totalitarian first century Roman Empire, that there's no way this little fledgling thing could survive unless it had the favor of the authorities, right? You would think that they would need favor from the authorities. But if you think that, then you would be very wrong. Because that is not what they experienced. Instead, we see again and again that the authorities were against the church. In Acts chapter 12, King Herod, the first sermon we looked at this fall, the first text we looked at, uh, King Herod has Peter thrown into prison shortly after he's had James, another one of the inner circle disciples, killed. So Herod is against them. In Acts 13 and 14, we see Paul getting kicked out of Pisidian Antioch. We see him and Barnabas narrowly escaping an assassination plot. We see Paul barely surviving a a stoning. It was meant to to have him executed. He survives by God's grace. But but over and over again, you don't have authorities going, hey guys, we'll, we'll protect you. We'll help you out. We'll try to seek justice against those who are trying to get at you. No, it was the gospel against the world. Do you ever feel like that a little bit? And I, I know our, our, first, our first reaction, our intuitive reaction is to say, well, no, it's, it, we, we, don't, we don't experience persecution, right? We don't, we, don't, we don't have anything like what they had in Acts or like other believers have around the world. We've got freedom here. And that's all true, granted, 100%. But let me ask you, does it, does it feel like our government is for or against gospel-proclaiming, biblically faithful churches? Does it, does it feel like 
the media organizations in Western culture are interested in giving Christians a good name? Does it feel like the academic institutions, the public schools, are, are really passionate about kind of giving the church a fair hearing when they talk about things going on in the world? Does it feel to you like overall the church is experiencing more or less favor in our culture? When we, when we built this church here, this building here, what kind of reception generally do you think we got from the community? A new church building? Look, it's not, I know, it's not, it's not persecution in the way that they experienced then. I'm not trying to foster a persecution complex. I'm just saying, let's, let's be honest, that when it comes to experiencing some measure of, of opposition and hostility from those outside, I mean, we, we, we experience that, right? Like, that's a real thing. That's stuff that we deal with as, as well. It's stuff they dealt with. It's stuff that we deal with. Another kind of aspect of this, the stuff that can so easily undermine the church that they dealt with was, was false teaching. That was the whole basis in Acts 15, that you had some people from the party of the Pharisees who were going out and telling people, the grace of Jesus isn't sufficient for you. You need something more. You need to become Jewish. You need to get circumcised if you're a male. And so there's this, this teaching that's going around and it's troubling the new Gentile believers. It's threatening to tear churches apart to create division between people. And a guy like Paul, who saw this incredible work in the churches of what is now modern day southern Turkey, he sees all his work getting undermined. He sees all of these new Gentile Christians all of a sudden on really unsteady ground because of what is frankly false teaching threatening to lead people astray. Do we deal with that today? Do we deal with false teaching at all? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm up here on a Sunday morning and i doing my best to proclaim what the Bible says, to, to proclaim the central non-negotiable truths of Christian faith. But I mean, people, people go home and they're gonna watch YouTube throughout the week and they're gonna hear who knows what, right? Like people spouting off all kinds of wacky ideas and not just like, like people who have read this stuff. Like it's usually people aren't going on and listening to like two hour long lectures that are like really deeply grounded, right? It's like little two minute sound bites from somebody who doesn't know anything, but they've got like followers. They've got a social media reach. They're, they're, they're popular and all of a sudden people are going off on tangents, right? This false teaching is everywhere. The church is being pulled in so many different directions, so many misinterpretations or just non-interpretations of the scripture. So yeah, we, we see that. We see that tearing at the church today too. It's stuff that we deal with as well. And then and there's another one, personality conflicts. Conflicts between leaders Sometimes I think that, that, you know, like the church, primarily the threat is outside persecution or false teaching from within. But actually what we see in this text and what we see in history often is that conflict that isn't based on theology. It's not based on beliefs. It's just like differences in personality, differences in temperament. That can really undermine things too. And I've experienced that in my own life as a leader, as a pastor, how those, those conflict situations can really destroy. And, and that's at the center of this text, right? So let's look at it a little bit more. So Paul, Paul says to Barnabas, he goes, Barney. I don't know if he called him that. I would if I were him. He goes, Barney, I got a great idea. 
let's go to all of those towns, all those places that we went to before, and let's, let's see how they're doing. Let's strengthen them. Let's encourage those believers. And for context, again, uh, what he's talking about is all those places in Acts 13 and 14 in what is modern-day southern Turkey then was the Roman province of Galatia. He says, let's go to all of those places. And, and, And Paul and Barnabas had actually, so they had gone through those towns and then they had gone back. They had visited them a second time on their way home. So this would actually be the third time. I know I made this point before, but it goes to tell us that Paul and Barnabas we're not just interested in making converts, racking up numbers, extending their influence and presence in the world. It wasn't like, I got to go to different places so that more people know my name. It was just, I, I want to see people grow in, in maturity in Christ. I want people to become disciples of Jesus. That was the whole motivation here. So Paul says, let's go, let's go do this. Let's go, let's go visit those places. And Barney says, hey, that's a great idea. Uh, Paul, old buddy, old pal. Let's, this, is, this is wonderful. Let's do this. But, but he's got an idea. He says, Paul, I want to bring someone with us. Ah, you remember Mark? You might, or you might know him as John or Mark. You, you remember that guy? I want to bring him with us. I want to give him another chance. And you know why he needed to have another chance? There's a little verse in Acts 13, verse 13. And when you read it in Acts 13, it feels like a little bit of a throwaway verse almost. Uh, Luke, Luke, the author of Acts, says from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John, that's Mark, another name, John left them to return to Jerusalem. And you read that at first and you think, okay, sounds pretty innocent, right? Like maybe Mark had some business to attend to. Maybe he was tired, you know, maybe, maybe this was the plan all along. It was just he was going to come with them this far and then go home. Like, we don't know. Maybe it's no big deal. But now here in Acts 15, Luke doesn't just say, oh, he, he left. He says he deserted them. And the Greek word, the original word is where we get the English word apostasy from. Mark, Mark didn't just like, hey, guys, I kind of have to go home. Okay, that's cool, Mark, that's fine. No, it wasn't like that. It was Mark failed. Mark left them hanging. Mark abandoned them. He betrayed them. I don't know if he betrayed, but he abandoned them. He, he left them hanging. And he went back home. He, he let them down. This was a significant failure on Mark's part. We don't know why. Luke doesn't tell us why. Some people speculate. But nevertheless, he left. He abandoned them. And now Barnabas is saying, well, I think we should give him another chance. And it makes sense that Barnabas would be the one doing this because Because Barnabas was all about encouragement. Barnabas actually wasn't his real name. His real name, according to Acts, was Joseph. But the apostles called him Barnabas because of what that name meant. The name means son of encouragement. So Barnabas was somebody who was so known for being encouraging, for being a man with a gracious spirit who gave people the benefit of the doubt who tended to see the best in people. That's kind of what, what Barnabas was like. And, and he, Barnabas had done this with Paul, actually, too. 
Um, Paul, in, in his early years, I think after becoming a follower of Jesus, he was, he was incredibly smart, incredibly gifted, but I think also probably a major pain in the butt. Um, you know, sometimes that happens with new believers, right? They're filled with zeal and passion, but there's not a lot of subtlety or, uh, or tact sometimes. And so Paul would go around and he would just, like, he was argumentative, he was combative, and, and he was, you know, again, very smart, but people were like, you know, I think I want to kill you is what often would happen when Paul went to a place. And so in Acts, actually, the, uh, the disciples, Paul ends up in Jerusalem, people want to kill him like they do everywhere else. And so the apostles say, we really, really think you should go back home. We think you should go. We're going to ship you off to Tarsus for your own good and maybe for our good too. Who knows? But as we're going to ship you out, he goes back to Tarsus. Now Barnabas, a few years later, is in Antioch. And it's like revival is happening in Antioch. It's incredible. The church is growing. There's, there's like the, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, that kind of thing. Just incredible what's happening. Barnabas goes, you know, this, this is too, too much for just me and a few others we need Paul. And so uh, he goes, he go, uh, Barnabas goes to Tarsus. He gets Paul. He brings him with him back to Antioch. It's like, I, I imagine Barnabas saying, I think we should give this guy another chance. I, I think he's maybe learned something from this experience. I think we need his gifts. Let's, let's bring him to Antioch. And this, this is what changes Paul's life. Paul going from Tarsus to Antioch is, is what sets Paul up for everything else that we know about him, everything that we read about him. It's because Barnabas gives him another chance. Barnabas is the son of encouragement. So he gives Mark another chance, wants to. And also, we also find out that, that um, in Colossians, we read that Mark and Barnabas were actually cousins. So there may have been some family connection here too where Barnabas is like, Paul, he's my brother, man. He's my blood. You know, you gotta let him, gotta give him another chance. But whatever the case, Barnabas wants to. And here's the thing. Barnabas was actually right. Barnabas was right about Mark. He was right to give him another chance. And you know why I say that? I say that partly because Paul himself recognizes later in his life now, this is really cool, how you can kind of piece together relational dynamics through different, different passages in the New Testament. So later on in Paul's life, he is writing, um, he's, he's writing in, in Colossians. And this is, this is what he says. He says, my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul is in prison when he writes the letters to the Colossians. He says, Mark is with me. Mark is visiting him in prison. He's keeping him company in prison. And he tells the Colossians, if Mark comes to you, I've told you about him, you should receive him. You should welcome him. And then later on in Paul's life, in Paul's life he's writing to Timothy, who we meet in this, in this passage in Acts 16 as well. And he writes to Timothy, he says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark. And bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So here's Paul later on in his life saying, Mark, I, I love the guy. He's my co-worker. He's my friend. Keeps me company in prison. He's going out. He's preaching the gospel. I mean, Mark ends up writing uh, our second gospel. In reality, it's probably the first gospel that's written. It becomes the foundation for Matthew and Luke when they write theirs. Mark is a really, really important figure in church history. He's a really important leader in the first century. Barnabas was right. 
He was right to see in Mark a guy who had potential and needed a second shot. But in Acts 15, Paul does not see it. Not at all. He goes over my dead body. Is Mark coming with us? I mean, this is not, and it's not like some polite disagreement. Like, you know, like I'm a non-confrontational Canadian. So I imagine myself in this situation. I imagine myself going, you know, Barnabas, I'm just kind of like struggling with this a little bit. I think we should pray about it. You know, maybe circle back to it, table it. For now, that's always the thing you do, right? Just table it. We'll circle back to it later. Don't want to deal with it right now. Let's just, you know, I'm just, I'm just having a hard time with this. That's not that. That's not what's happening here. Um, the Greek word indicates a really vicious argument. N.T. Wright, in his Britishism, says that it was a horrible, blazing, bitter row. It's like the British thing, right? It's always a row. He says, this, this, is, this is not like a polite disagreement between friends. This is, like, this is an impassioned, heated argument that splits them up. And given what we know about their temperaments, who do you think is mostly escalating the situation here? I'm going with Paul on this one, right? Like, Barnabas, son of encouragement. Paul, everywhere he goes, people want to kill him. So who's, who's more liable to be heating up the situation, throwing words out that he's going to later regret? I, I think that's probably Paul. And what's ironic here is that Paul is then going to go and he's going to deliver and read a letter that really boils down to Christian unity and charity and understand and grace towards other believers, right? Like that's the letter that they're delivering, and, and Paul's going to do that right after this. And then you think about things that Paul writes later on in his life. He says in Romans, as, as, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Really, Paul? He says in Colossians, bear with each other, forgive one another. If any one of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. You hearing this, Paul? You hearing what I'm reading here? Colossians 3, um, or sorry, Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Galatians 6, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Just like Paul wrote those words, and yet he also had this thing with Barnabas. Like, what's, what's up with that? And I think, I think one of the things we could easily do is just kind of level the charge of hypocrisy at Paul. Maybe we kind of think, well, did this guy actually mean the things that he wrote? You know? Like, is, is this just another one of those examples of a religious person who says nice things, but then doesn't actually live it out? Is, is, is this all a sham? Is there anything authentic at all going on here? Right? Like, is that, that might be a charge that we level at Paul. All right, so I, um, I don't watch very much soccer. I watch soccer basically once every four years. And I know I'm going to offend like everyone in the world right now, but I just struggle with it. I struggle with people acting like they've been shot and writhing around on the ground, getting carried off on stretchers, being sprayed with magic water, and then two minutes later, they're totally fine. They're sprinting around. I just struggle with it, okay? Just a little bit. But I was watching, I was watching the first half, and by the way, again, like for those of you like watching online because of soccer, like Canada lost, so whatever. Um, <laughs> I actually don't know if they lost, I don't know, if they, I think they lost, anyways, doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I cheered for Canada, 100%, go Canada. Uh, so anyways, I was... <laughs> I 
I was watching, uh, I wa- so I was watching uh, Canada-Belgium uh, earlier this week. Uh, I was watching the first half, and I saw the penalty uh, kick that Canada got, right? And I don't know, so like, again, I watch like once every four years. So I'm looking at this guy, and I'm like, okay, so he's like, one of, he's the best player on Canada. He's a professional. The net's as wide as my townhome. Like, I think he should be able to score, right? And I feel like if you kick it, top half of the net, like, you're, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna score, right? Canada, woo But uh, instead, he kind of, like, flubs, like, a relatively soft shot in the, in the general direction of the goalie. And I'm like, what? Like, that was, that was the best you could do under the circumstances? Come on, man. But then I think about my sport. I think about basketball. And I think about the free throw. The free throw should be the most automatic shot in sports because... Because it's the same shot every time. And these guys have practiced this shot millions of times. It should be pure muscle memory, right? You get up, it's the exact same shot every time. But then most of these guys only make six or seven out of ten. Here's the thing, though. I discovered this past week. So Dwight Howard, one of the worst free throw shooters in NBA history, is actually a guy that teams would foul intentionally because that was better than playing defense. It was better for Dwight Howard to shoot an unhindered shot from, from the free throw line than to actually play defense. That was the strategy for many years. So he would miss like over half of them in the game, but then in practice he would make over 80% of them. See, there's something about the game, soccer, basketball, whatever, where your adrenaline is coursing through your body and you've got thousands, maybe millions of people watching, and you've got fans yelling and screaming and waving things to try to distract you. It, it just kind of leads to poor performance, right? It, it just, it lead, it triggers something that, that, that causes some degree of, of failure. And I, I think that's what we see with, with Paul, that yes, he, he, he wrote these words, he believed, he believed these words, and in many cases, he lived them out, he really did. But there were circumstances that could trigger in Paul a kind of a contrary disposition that would kind of bring him back to a default kind of combativeness and aggressiveness and so on. There, there were certain circumstances that made it really, really challenging for him to actually live out what he said, what, what he really did believe. And, and that's not to justify it at all. It's just to say that, that all of us are vulnerable to this, aren't we? We're all vulnerable to to speaking words, and to genuinely believing and desiring something, but then given certain circumstances that might trigger something in us, all of a sudden we're doing something different. We're all, we're all vulnerable to this. We are all liable to this. And so it should help us kind of show some grace and understanding to Paul, recognizing that, yes, he's a hero of the faith. One of the most, you know, important kind of followers of Jesus, important leaders in the church, in church history, but he's human. He's a human He fell short sometimes of what he aspired to. So do we. We're humans too. Regardless, the split that takes place here is is tragic. Because you've got Paul and Barnabas, partners in the gospel, close friends, who have gone into spiritual battle together, and now they're split, and not very amicably either. And, and what, what a tragedy. And you, you kind of add this to the list of all of those other things, all of those other trials, all of those other struggles. You know, you think about the persecution the church is experiencing. You think about false teaching that they're dealing with. Now you've got this division and this conflict between leaders, and you might just say, what, is, what, what hope is there for the church? Given all the brokenness, all the weakness, what hope is there for this thing to survive? Never mind thrive. 
And, and some people kind of say that today too, right? They look at all the things, all the humanness of the church, and they, they write the whole thing off. Like, why even bother with this? How can the church survive this? How can individual Christians survive this? And the answer is only by the grace and the power of God. This is what I mean when I say that what impresses me most about this passage is the character of God because in all of these different situations, we see God kind of behind the scenes, but he's got his fingerprints all over this, bringing about transformation, the Holy Spirit working to turn mountains that seem to stand in the way of gospel growth and moving those out of the way, turning them into highways for the good news to go forward. Now look at how this works out. Look at how it works out with persecution. So the church in Antioch, which is kind of a central church in this whole story, the church in Antioch gets its start because of persecution in Jerusalem. So uh, Stephen is the first Christian martyr, kind of prompts this greater persecution in Jerusalem. And as a result, people flee from Jerusalem. They go to all of these other places, including Antioch, spreading the word of God. That's how the church in Antioch gets its start, because people are fleeing from persecution in Jerusalem. So it's like the authorities are trying to destroy the church. It's like the church is like a dandelion and they're blowing on the church to kind of destroy it. But God kind of takes those spores of the dandelion and spreads them around that leads to further growth. The church in Antioch, in turn, now sends people out. And all of these other churches are being planted. People are hearing about Jesus because of the church in Antioch. It's this kind of ripple effect that persecution actually affects in God's hands. He uses that, turns that, and uses it for, for growth and for transformation. You see it with false teaching. So here's this teaching, threatens to undo the church, tear it apart. And what do they do? Well, first of all, by God's wisdom, they gather together. It's not just one person dealing with this on their own. They come together as followers of Jesus. And then when they come together, the leaders don't, they don't rely on traditions. They don't, they don't succumb to pressure from other groups. What do they do? They go back to the word of God. That's what we looked at last week, where James quotes Amos. They say, this is what, this is what God says. What, what, is, what, is, what is his truth? What's the truth in the word? They go to that. They say in the letter, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So this decision they come to has been made through reflection on the word, through prayer, through spiritual discernment. God is moving in this. He's, he's leading them, brings them to this consensus. Then the letter goes out. They send the letter to these places. And, and what What's the result of the letter being read? Well, we read in, in, chapter, in chapter 15 that the people read it and they were glad for its encouraging message. So these Gentiles who were troubled and, and disturbed are now glad. They're encouraged. Judas and Silas sent from Jerusalem. They stay a while. They strengthen the believers. So this teaching that had the potential of really undermining the work now is strengthened. Now, now Christians are being strengthened. The church is being strengthened. In chapter 16, as Paul is traveling from town to town, they're delivering the decisions, and the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. 
It's like the, the, the false teaching creates a need to be clear about what the church believes. It, 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 it makes them need to work this stuff out. It gives rise to greater vision, greater clarity as it goes out, as this, as this resolution goes out. It strengthens people, encourages people, enables the church to actually grow in numbers. So this teaching, God uses it, turns it, transforms it, uses it for growth. And I actually think he does the same kind of thing with this conflict, with this, this, this conflict between, between Paul and Barnabas. Because Barnabas takes Mark, and they go to Cyprus, and Paul chooses Silas, and, and they're going to go to some other places. And, and so they're, they're, they're going, they're, they're, they're separated, but they're going with the same message, right? They're not going with different messages. They're going with the same gospel message, only now, now the, the work is being multiplied. God actually uses this to multiply the work. And God provides Paul with a new ministry partner. Silas is, uh, he's, in, he's advantageous in a couple of ways. Silas is a leader from Jerusalem. So as they're going around and they're reporting to the, the churches, this is, what the, this is what we've settled on, they, they, they might say, well, what does Jerusalem think? And Silas could say, well, I can tell you, I'm from there. I'm a leader in Jerusalem. Silas is also, it seems to be a Roman citizen, which is going to come in handy later on in the story. So God has given, he's given Silas or, or Paul a new ministry partner. He's multiplying the work. And God continues to multiply the work. Because when Paul comes to Lystra, he comes across a guy named Timothy. This is an interesting one. And I think, I think this whole story with Timothy shows us that Paul was able to lay down his combativeness, his stubbornness for the sake of the gospel. Now, Timothy, at this point, is pro people think probably in his late teens, early 20s. Paul, probably in his late 30s. So he kind of really, Paul, Paul hears that, here's this young guy. He's gifted for ministry, loves the Lord. Paul meets him. He's impressed. He wants to take him along with him. But there's a problem. Because Timothy is, in the eyes of Jews, he is a Jew. His mother is Jewish. But his father is Greek, so he wasn't circumcised when he, was, uh, when he was eight days old, like Jewish boys normally would be. And Paul knows that if he takes Timothy with him, and they go to a synagogue, which is where Paul always goes at first in a town, that the Jews aren't going to even be able to hear what he has to say. They're just going to go, that guy over there, that's an apostate Jew. That, that's, that's, you know, what is Paul doing here? He's undermining the entirety of the Jewish law. Like, how, how is this working? And so Paul says to remove this stumbling block, I'm sorry, Timmy, but you got to go under the knife. Lots of nicknames from Paul today. He goes, like, to remove this stumbling block. Paul would never tell a Gentile to get circumcised in order to kind of prove their salvation. But if you've got a Jew... Paul says, no, 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 to remove this stumbling block, not because you need this to be saved or anything like that, but to remove the stumbling block so that people can actually hear the good news, we're going to jump through this hoop. This, this actually, to me, speaks of a lot of wisdom on Paul's part. His, his desire to remove these obstacles, to live at peace with people wherever possible. Um, and it's, it's been helpful for me as well in my own decision making. So I'll give you, it's in, in a number of ways, but I'll give you one example. I was baptized when I was 15 years old. And in the church where I was baptized, where I grew up, they did baptism by, uh, so I would kneel on the ground, and then the pastor, who was actually my father, took a jug of water and he poured it on top of my head. So I'm just fully dressed, I just have water dripping down. That was baptism. And I don't really know why we did it that way, and, and if I, 
you know, knew about immersion, if that was an option, I think I would have chosen it even back then. You know, to be dunked in the water is consistent with a biblical kind of uh, image of what baptism is, but that was the way it was done. And I, I believe that that was a legitimate, true baptism. That I was, I was saying, look, I want to follow Jesus, and there was water involved, and there was a confession of faith involved. I believe that was a legitimate, true baptism. However, when I came to the bridge, I was actually the pastor of the bridge for a few months before I, I had to get rebaptized. I couldn't be, I, I was a pastor, but I couldn't become a member of the church unless I got rebaptized by immersion. And I could have kind of said, no, like this is ridiculous. I'm going to jump through this hoop. I got baptized when I was 15. That should be good enough for you guys. But I knew that God was calling me here. I knew that God had called me to ministry here at the bridge. And if this was, if this was something that was going to stand in the way of that, if this was a stumbling block, then I was willing to get rebaptized for that sake. So me and Carolyn got dunked in uh, the baptism tank at North Shore Alliance. They were going to do a baptism that Sunday. So on like the Friday, the pastor opened it up for us. Eli, who was our associate pastor at the time, he dunked us. And I remember him praying like, God, this is so weird. I have no idea what you think about this. You know, just, <laughs> but we did it. We got, we got rebaptized. We got baptized by immersion to kind of remove this, this stumbling block instead of kind of being combative and stubborn, just kind of saying, no, okay, if this is, this is, this is the people that I want to reach and this is what it takes, then absolutely, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. The point is, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is using all of these circumstances that would otherwise destroy the work that God was doing, and he uses it actually to bring about greater growth, to strengthen the church, to encourage the church. He's, he's a God who does this, who's able to transform these situations for the good. And the key, it seems to me in this, from a human perspective, is that in every one of these situations, you can see that people's eyes were on the Lord. Their hearts were oriented towards the kingdom of God. That's what opened up the way for God to do this work. See, in persecution, let's say, People, the early Christians, when they, were, when they were persecuted, their eyes weren't on the persecutors. Their desire wasn't that the persecution would stop. As we've said a few times, their desire was even in the midst of that for the kingdom of God to go forward. In Acts 4, one of my favorite prayers in the whole of the scriptures, the disciples are, are, you know, they've just, a couple of them have been thrown into prison. They're praying together. They say, Lord, do you hear their threats? And they don't say, make it stop. They say, enable us to speak your word with boldness. Their eyes are on the Lord, not on their persecutors. Their eyes are on the kingdom of God. With false teaching. We saw that again. What do, the early, what do those leaders of the church do? They don't get all anxious. They don't try to like balance different interest groups. All they say is, what does God say? What is the Holy Spirit saying to us? Their eyes are on the Lord. And even with this conflict, even with this split between Paul and Barnabas, both of them want to see Jesus made known in the world. That is their desire. And so even though they're not ministering together anymore, later on, Paul will write to the Corinthians and he will talk about Barnabas as his co-worker in the gospel. He recognizes that even if they've had a difference of opinion, they are still brothers and they are still striving for the same thing. There is still, in fact, a unity between Paul and Barnabas because their eyes are on the Lord. 
See, the greatest threat to the church, and I need you to hear me really clearly on this, the greatest threat to the church is not persecution. And it's actually not false teaching if that's rightly handled. And it's not conflict. You know what the greatest threat to the church, the thing that can undermine the church more than anything else is? It's self. Self is the greatest cancer to Christian community. When people in the church become obsessed with their own, their own status, with their own recognition, with their own rights, with their own, you know, empire, when they become overly sensitive to any perceived personal slights, when they put themselves at the center, that's when, that's when the way, God's transformational way is blocked. When we put ourselves at the center and we say, no, it's all about me. But what opens the way what creates the avenue for God to do his miraculous work of turning mountains into highways is when when we are set on him, when our eyes are above, when we are seeking the kingdom of God, when we are placing the needs of others ahead of our own, when our lives are all about the mission of making Jesus known. That's what opens up the way. After all, what is a follower of Jesus? A follower of Jesus is someone who has died to themselves, taken up the cross, and followed Him, followed Jesus, who left the glories of heaven, who gave up his life, who made himself nothing and went to the cross for us. That's who we follow when we we die to ourselves and follow him. Man, God can do incredible things. And so I pray that you are encouraged today. I pray that you see this, that that you see this passage and you see how God's fingerprints are all over the early church, all over these lives, that as you die to yourself and follow him, as you live with your eyes above, that God can take any of the circumstances in your life that threaten to destroy you, that threaten to undermine you, that threaten to destabilize you, that threaten to destabilize the church. He could take all of those circumstances and he can turn the mountains into highways. He could transform them. So be encouraged. This is what he does. Trust him. See, gospel outbreaks. That's the time to put a little bow and wrap it up on this whole sermon series. Gospel outbreaks don't happen because of an absence of challenges. They don't happen in your life and they don't happen in the church because there's an absence of challenges or hardships or stuff. Gospel outbreaks, as we have said, happen in those challenges, through them, as the power of God works in those whose eyes are set on him. That's where gospel outbreaks happen. So let me pray for you, and then let's, let's sing into that a little bit. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is a living word. Thank you that it speaks, Lord, into our lives today, that the things that happened to the church in the first century, uh, Lord, that they speak to our hearts, that they speak to the human condition, they speak to Uh, how we are to be saved, how we are to live for you as powerfully today as as 2,000 years ago. And so I thank you for the gift of your word. And I pray, Lord, today for all of my friends here. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray, Lord, that they would be refreshed and renewed by this vision of who you are as the God who turns 
mountains into highways, a God who can take all of these adverse circumstances and actually use them for growth and strengthening and encouragement. I pray, Lord, that my friends here, that their eyes would be set on you. I pray for those, Lord, who haven't known you and today are hearing about who you are, are hearing what you did for them, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would bring them to a place of surrendering self and living for you. That you would bring them to a place, Lord, of of setting their hearts on you and that their lives would be transformed as a result. Thank you, God, that this is who you are. This is what you do. We love you. We worship you. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There, you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.